This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Titus, as we're in the third part of our series on what an elder is, God's word. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought to not teach. One of those Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure... All things are pure, but to defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is God's word. Thanks, Ruth. Aaron, I'd like to send you an email. We need two sets of stairs because Ruth just about knocked me out right there trying to come up. And rather than taking him down there and embarrassing him, I showed some constraint, but next time I won't. (laughs) Anyway, good morning. As Ruth said, we're currently in a series going through the book of Titus, trying to get our biblical bearings on such topics as the church plant and the church planter, the elder and the deacons, uh, the congregants and the mission of the church. More specifically, this is our third sermon of three on the topic of of elders. Uh, As a church... Uh, This series and these three sermons are the first step in a process we are undertaking together in in order to uh, appoint more elders to serve and to lead alongside Rue and I on the session. And the session is just a a word that talks about the collection of the elders meeting uh, together. So uh, Lord willing, this is our third and last sermon on, on elders. Uh, in the coming weeks, I'll make it very clear both through announcements and through uh, written documents and through emails, I'll let you know um, what the next steps are in the process. Uh, one of the next steps will be elder nominations. It's the chance for congregants of City Church to nominate uh, the men that they would like to see enter into the rest of the process. But in order for you to nominate, uh, the first step is for me to teach Um, from the Bible, what an elder is, so you know what you're looking for in the nominations. And we've We've really spent three weeks on this one, probably could have done it in one, but I really felt like some of us have no experience in church at all, and so we need a little bit of redundancy in the teaching, and some of us have come from um, backgrounds and stories where we presume we know what an elder is, and in fact, we kind of have more of a uh, one culture, an American culture's application, an American educated culture's application of what an elder is instead of what the Bible says an elder 
is. So this is the third week. We've had four points or four perspectives we've been looking at on an elder. Uh, We talked, first of all, about the biblical uh, categories of an elder. We talked about the biblical character of an elder. We talked about the biblical calling of an elder. And then this morning, we're going to tackle the biblical uh, competencies of an elder. One of the points in in the nomination process will be, did you listen to all three sermons? If not, you'll have to go back to the podcast and listen. Uh, so let me just uh, tell you, we've said a lot up to this point. I can't regurgitate it all. Uh, you'll have to kind of go back and listen to that yourselves. And some of that will provide really good t- context for this morning's topic, the competencies or the abilities of an elder. So let's again pray and we'll get going. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, that the faith of the elect is at stake in the appointing of good elders, that Paul is living his life for the faith of the elect, and that he says he leaves Titus in Crete, so the faith of the elect in Crete might be established and made firm and renewed, and in some instances brought into existence altogether. And he tells Titus, I want you to appoint elders because there are false teachers in the midst and they are greedy for evil gain and they are upsetting entire families. They are teaching things that do not accord with healthy doctrine and people's lives are being obliterated by it. And he says, in order to combat this, multiply your teaching ministry and elders. We pray that you would give this body wisdom and discernment and guidance as we walk through this process together. Give us the elders you want us to have. Keep from us the elders that would not be good for us. Uh, give us patience and faith and trust in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The biblical competencies of an elder, the skills or abilities of an elder. When we talked about the character of an elder, that was answering the question, who are they? When we talk about the competencies of an elder, it's not only letting us know what the elders do, but it's, it's telling us what the elders have to be able to do by God's gifting and equipping to be an elder. While I think you could add to this list and make a rather long list of biblically what elders do, the scriptures speak over and over to, to, to two primary tasks of an elder, oversight and teaching. Oversight and teaching. So we'll just tackle oversight first. Look down with me at Titus 1.7. In verse 5, uh, Paul had written to Titus, Titus, appoint elders. This is why I left you in Crete. Love, Paul. Uh, Verses 6 through 8, he says, look for men, appoint men that have this kind of gospel character. Verse 7, the second time that Paul says an elder has to be above reproach, he uses one of the interchangeable titles for an elder. We discussed that last week. He calls him an overseer. Um, As we said last week, an, an overseer is just one of the titles for an elder in the New Testament. It comes from a Greek root, which sometimes shows up as a noun, so it's a title, And sometimes it shows up as a verb. It's an assignment. It's a competency. It's a task. 1 Peter 5 is an example of this word being used as a verb. Listen, to the elders, Peter writes, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight or overseeing. Episkopos is really two Greek words put together, over and sight. Yes, you guessed it. Good for you. Oversight is leadership. Oversight is this. 
getting above the context that you're leading, getting perspective on the context by looking down upon it and leading based on what you perceive. Oversight is this. It's to look down upon. It's not to look down on like as a judgmental, condescending, self-righteous person. It's, it's to get above the fray. It's to take it all in. It's entering into the context, either yourself individually or through instruction, and it's leading people in the context. Look back at Titus 1.7. An, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Paul further defines what an overseer is by using the analogy of a steward. A steward simply is this. It's the manager of a household. Think Chick-fil-A for a second. Not too long because we'll get hungry and we'll be frustrated that they're not open on Sunday. But, but think about it for a second. From what I can tell, it's the greatest fast food restaurant in the world for lots of reasons, like the waffle fries. But but I think it's fantastic because regardless of which Chick-fil-A I've ever been to, they are managed better than most restaurants, fast food or otherwise. A Chick-fil-A manager or a Chick-fil-A overseer is not physically above the employees, but in terms of authority, the manager rotates through the various sections of the team, checking on and supporting and giving directions to the various employees who are serving there. The employees, the the cooks are cooking and they can't really see what else is going on. Those taking orders are taking orders and they can't really see what's behind them. Those uh, stocking uh, um, the shelves and, and making sure that the food is in its right place don't necessarily have the time to run what's going on by the cooks. And, and over and over, but the manager floats around between all of them and makes sure that it's running effectively and efficiently and well. An overseer, as God's steward, his household manager, must be above reproach. So an elder knows the church where he serves. He knows this is not his church. He doesn't own it. The manager does not own the restaurant, but he's responsible for it, and he has authority in it. An elder has to and must be able to get above the fray of the church, look down upon the church, see what is really happening in the church, prayerfully consider scripture as to what should be happening in the church, and then the elder moves into the body, either personally or through instructions and directions to other leaders, and he makes the necessary changes. So Paul uses the analogy of the steward for the overseer. But Peter, in the verse I've already read, uh, uses the much more common biblical analogy of the shepherd. He says in 1 Peter 5, Peter, as one who has experienced the glorious resurrection of Jesus, he's saying, I'm an apostle. Uh, Peter, as one who partook in that glory, he's saying, I saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, as, as a fellow elder, I am telling the elders who are reading this letter, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. The term and the title elder has its roots in Jewish culture. The term and the title overseer has its roots in Greco-Roman culture. In Peter's day and age, 2,000 years ago, the Greek word episkopos or overseer was most commonly used in two professions, two lines of work. This will help us understand the work of an overseer. That of the shepherd is one profession and that of the military leader is the other. So this is what oversight and shepherding looked like in the ancient Near East culture. And by this, I don't mean shepherding, pastoring people. I mean leading fluffy little white animals, okay? A team of shepherds 
would take dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of sheep, and they would meander around, and and they would constantly look for the resources needed for the sheep to survive. A shepherd was always looking for adequate grass and adequate water. Shepherds would primarily shepherd their flock in locations where there were peaks and valleys, certainly not rugged mountain terrain, but someplace that was not flat. The shepherd would climb to the highest point of the region and he would oversee or he would look down on the flock in exercising oversight. From the vantage point of height, a shepherd could see, for example, where the next field of grass was to be found, where other shepherds were managing their flocks in the distance, which direction a pack of wolves were coming from. And very importantly, through oversight, a shepherd could see when a sheep was wandering away from the fold away from safety, away from warmth, away from community, into isolation and danger. So the shepherding analogy for the elders in the New Testament is primarily about oversight, leadership, management, creating a culture, making decisions that impact lots of lives. We tend to think that the primary point of shepherding in the New Testament is holding and carrying and combing the fluffy white hair of a single sheep. That's not the case. Elders, competency, number one, lead an entire flock through oversight, not checking the belly of a sheep for ticks. It's making decisions that affect the whole body, not playing fetch with one sheep. It is occasionally chasing after a wayward sheep, but it is not one-on-one time with most of the sheep. It's oversight. The second profession, if you will, in Greek culture where the term uh, episkopos was most commonly used. Again, the New Testament is written in Greek language uh, with the presupposition of Greek culture in some ways. And, And so in addition to shepherding, the concept that would have popped into the original hearer's mind was that of the military leader, the military general. We've most likely seen more examples of this in movies than that of the shepherd, whether it's a movie about the historic Greco-Roman world, say in the movie 300, or or the American Civil War, or the European Wars as depicted, for example, in the most recent Robin Hood. Battles were fought in valleys so that the opposing generals could episkopos or oversee the battle from opposite sides. The general could, through the use of flags, bugles, drums, and messengers, lead the troops. He could send supplies or troop reinforcements. He could tell one platoon, if you will, uh, and now I'm talking in language from another uh, time. They would not have called them platoons, but I don't know what they called them. So he would tell one platoon, retreat, and he would tell another to advance. Look back at the role of the elder in the New Testament church. As you're aware, both of these analogies are used in Scripture to speak of the church and its leaders, the shepherding analogy and the military analogy. The shepherding analogy is primarily applied to the internal well-being of the flock, and the military analogy is primarily applied to the external mission of the church, to fight against the dominion of darkness, not other peoples and other cultures, but to fight against Satan who desires to devour and destroy and put to death. So the first competency of an elder is to oversee, to look down upon the church itself and the missional context in which God has placed it, to discern, to pray, 
to lead so that the sheep are protected and fed and cared for and so that the church's borders could be expanded to include more sheep and more land that might be impacted by the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Before we move on, let's make a very clear point of application uh, for all of us, if you will. If you call City Church home, though, I want to speak specifically to you. If you're, if you're a believer and you say, I'm a part of this flock, this is the easiest way to apply this text. Uh, of course, I want you to think about those who you might nominate who would be good at overseeing, who, who are already showing the capacity for oversight. But this is the best way for each and every one of us to think about this truth. If there are elders called to oversee, then there are sheep called to be overseen. If there are elders called to manage, then there are sheep called to be managed. If there are elders called to lead, then there are sheep called to be led. Application questions. How well are you doing at being overseen, managed, and led? Are you a consumer at this church doing what is asked of you if you want to or if it lines up with what you were already doing? Or are you a soldier realizing that your commanding officer is asking you to do something like city groups, city Bible reading, leadership development, for example? When the shepherds or elders call out, we're moving from here to there, We think it's good for us and good for the city. Do you think, from my perspective, my vantage point, that doesn't make a ton of sense, but I don't see everything from down here, and I trust that through prayer and through oversight, they're doing what's best for all of us. And do you move? In America, we tend towards independence, autonomy, self-reliance, consumeristic thinking. In America, we tend to think that we're the captain of our own ship, This is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're overseen, we're managed, we're led. Don't just agree with me theoretically. How does this play out tangibly in your life? It's only in this context that the elders are overseers and managers, those under authority with authority. It is only in this context that the shepherding and the military analogy context, it's only in this context that Hebrews 13 even begins to make sense when it says, obey your leaders. It's only in this context that 1 Peter 5, 5 makes sense. Be subject to, submit yourself to the elders. Place your mission under the mission of those who can see everything and have oversight. Now, don't get mad. I'm in my teaching function here. I'm simply teaching you the Bible. I'm not demanding that any one of you actually do anything. I'm not domineering you. I'm I'm teaching you. I'm calling for you to find life and joy and significance if needed. I'm calling you to repent and obey Jesus in this regard. We're at war. We're not on vacation. This is how this practically gets worked out at City Church. We have five membership vows. 
No one forces anyone to be a member around here. No one forces anyone to take these vows around here. The people of City Church who become members prayerfully decide to say, I do to all five vows, which includes the fifth. Do you submit yourself to the government, a historic word for oversight, and discipline of this church? As an elder... In my overseeing duties, I rarely, if ever, tell people what to do. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that I'm not to be domineering, that that I'm not to do this for my own gain, that, that I'm not to do this out of a love for control and power. But the Bible says in my teaching function, I am supposed to tell you that you need to be subject to the elders, that you need to obey your leaders. If you can't do that with me, go somewhere else and find some men to do that with. It's pretty simple. If you come to me and say, help me make this decision in my life, I will very rarely tell you what to do. I might if we have relationship. I might if you know I love you. I might if, if I really have what I feel to be something directly from the Lord confirmed in community. I might tell you what to do. But as a teacher this morning, I'm telling you what the Bible says. It says the elders or overseers, and managers, and leaders, and most importantly, the flock itself and the expansion of Jesus' borders will be held in check if we do not repent and lead towards it. So the first thing an elder does and has to have the competency to do is to oversee, is to lead. Secondly, an elder is called to and must be gifted to teach. So an elder has two primary competencies, overseeing and teaching. Look back down in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He told him in verse 5, appoint elders. He told him in verses 6 through 8, look for men with the character of these verses uh, who can oversee and then read 1-9 with me. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that one of the qualifications for an overseer is simply this, that he must, quote, be able to teach. In Titus, Paul goes a lot further. He expands on this little idea, and he gives these three dimensions to the ability to teach. All right, let's unpack it together. He, being the elder or the overseer, must hold firm or be loyal to the trustworthy word, the faithful word, as taught or or in accordance with the teaching. So part one of the ability to teach is first a receiving or a being taught the teaching or what Paul is going to call in a second the sound doctrine. So first, the ability to teach includes being loyal to what you've been taught. And what an elder has been taught has to sort of go beyond the simple ability to to talk about the contents of the Bible. It has to go into the realm of the teaching or sound doctrine. We'll talk about that in a second. Keep going. So that he may be able to give instruction or he may be able to exhort others in sound doctrine. So part two of what we're looking for um, in an elder who has the ability to teach is not simply holding on to or, or being loyal to uh, good teaching, but, but it's an, an ability to powerfully and effectively give it away. 
And so now again, it doesn't just say that the elder needs to know the Bible and can quote the Bible, although that's obviously very good. It says that there is such a thing as a teaching, as doctrine, an understanding of what the Bible teaches in a coherent story and system. Someone who has the gift of teaching doesn't simply know what the third verse of the fourth chapter in Galatians says, but they know the one story of the Bible and how all the various books and chapters and verses work together and fit together in the gospel. Someone who has a gift of teaching can take any verse in the Bible and show how it fits with the rest of Scripture or where it fits in the story of Jesus. So an elder with the ability to teach has to hold firm, hold fast to the teaching he was taught. He has to be able to communicate that teaching effectively, giving it away to others. But here's the third part. And also, he has to be able to rebuke, refute, show the error, even overthrow the argument of those who contradict it. It's... It, it, it's talking about the teaching, the, the, the sound doctrine. Now, someone with the gift of teaching can walk into our culture and can help you understand the worldview and the philosophy and the teaching of our culture, whether it's Oprah or a college professor or Tiger Woods' new statement on his self-salvation project. An elder can move into the world and say, this is where they think they're going to get life. This is where it breaks down and does not work. This is where the gospel is clearly better. But an elder can also interact with, and this is the context of this passage, he can interact with and he has the ability to overthrow and rebuke and refute the one who uses Scripture out of context and out of balance and to refute the one who uses the Bible to teach and support something that's not a true and faithful and trustworthy word. If you look at the context In Titus, on the island of Crete, Paul is saying to Titus, multiply your teaching ministry. Appoint elders who have the ability to teach so that they can both give instruction but also proactively rebuke sharply false teachers. 9 through 16 lets us know why Paul is so urgent in this, that that there are some who claim to know God, but that their lazy, uh, gluttonous, detestable, evil, impure lives denied him. And for the motivation of shameful gain, and we would have to presume shameful pleasure, they were upsetting, overturning, destroying entire families. And so to summarize what we said so far in this entire series, an elder, a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer, a teacher, they must have biblical calling, an internal desire, and an external invitation. They must have biblical character where they have seen the gospel of Jesus transform them and transform them and save them and renew them in significant ways. And their current trust in the gospel has to be evidenced in a life of repentance of sins, particular sins being repented of publicly. This proves that a man has the character of an elder, both growth and the ability to to repent right now for the areas where he needs to see growth. But he also has to be biblically competent. He has to have a gift or an ability from God to oversee, to lead. He has to have a gift or an ability from God to teach sound doctrine. So back to our context and the nomination process we're about to undertake. You may know men who love Jesus deeply and they have sacrificed much for his kingdom, who have deep gospel character in their lives, who may even be great leaders, but if they cannot 
teach in the way I just described in Titus chapter 1, they are not an elder. They are most likely a deacon. Now, follow me on this rabbit trail for a second. I want you to know how to understand this as time unfolds for us, the different offices of the elder and the deacon. So in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy write to all the saints in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. There's two offices in the church. First, Timothy, uh, the letter from Paul to Timothy about the same time he wrote Titus and Crete, he wrote Timothy and Ephesus. And in the same period of time, he, he says in chapter 3, verse 8, right after the qualifications for an elder in 3.1 through 3.7, he, he gives the qualifications for the men and the women who are deacons. He says, the character called for in a deacon is very similar to the character called for in an elder. In fact, he writes this, deacons likewise, or in the same manner, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, etc., etc. So the character for a deacon and an elder are very similar. But the difference between the two lies in what they do, what their competencies are. More specifically, a deacon does not have to be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. He must simply, quoting 1 Timothy 3, hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Elders must be able to teach. Deacons must be able to hold to good teaching. A fuller exploration of Scripture will show elders have a ministry of the Word. Deacons have a ministry of works. Elders tend to serve the, the, the flock through their proclamation. Deacons tend to serve the flock through their presence. Elders tend to minister to the city through ideas. Deacons tend to minister to the city through deeds. This distinction is made very, very clear in Acts chapter 6. The apostles or the elder types in their overseeing duties discover that Grecian widows, um, uh, compared to Hebrew widows, that these Grecian widows were being neglected in the daily distribution or literally the daily deaconing of food. Chapter 6, verse 1. And at this point, the church in Jerusalem was growing rapidly, and, and the apostle elders were overwhelmed with all that was going on and all the ministry that needed to take place. And so this is me quoting Acts chapter 6. They summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve or deacon tables. Words, works, proclamation, presence, ideas, deeds. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. So again, biblical character matters. We will appoint to this duty or this task or this work, verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry. It's literally the word deacon. We will devote ourselves to the distribution of the word. So again, let's tease it out for our context. For the nomination of men to participate in the elder process, a deacon has been taught. They know and they hold firm to biblical teaching. An elder goes beyond that and can himself articulate what needs to be said and rebuke those who are false in what they teach. If you walk up to a deacon and you make a statement of something that's heretical or false, they will tell you with confidence that's false and that's wrong. But an elder will tell you from the Bible and from good reason why it's wrong. 
A deacon will, will talk about the Bible to you and you'll tend to say, that's true and move on and just want to spend time with them because their, pre- pleasant, their presence is so pleasurable. An elder will teach you the Bible and you'll want to get away from them and say, uh, I-, I want to know more about that. I want what he talked about there. I want to read my Bible more, but you're not necessarily drawn to being close to him. It's part of the oversight function of the elder. A deacon has to be able to say yes or no, while an elder has to be able to explain. An elder, an overseer, has to be able to teach. There are men and women who have the gift of teaching, but there is never, ever a biblical elder who does not have a teaching gift. So in our context... Just so you know, the men who go through elder training will be tested on whether they can hold to biblical teaching through exams. They will be tested on whether they can deliver instruction and sound doctrine through preaching and teaching assignments. They will show whether they can rebuke unhealthy and unsound doctrine through rigorous debates and arguments. You'll be arguing against Rue, who is unsound in every way. I'm just joking. So let's conclude this sermon and these three sermons this way, okay? Again, I apologize for the redundancy, but especially over the last three weeks, we've had a wide range of attendees. So let's just summarize it this way. Uh, An elder is one who has a biblical calling. They're one who has uh, biblical competencies, and they're also one who has biblical character. But I want to remind you that these are all one person. If you remove any one component or perspective, you don't have an elder, someone with a teaching gift who doesn't want to or doesn't desire to sacrifice civilian pursuits is not an elder. Someone with strong character who has lots of gifts other than leading and teaching is not an elder. And applying to today, if someone has a powerful leadership gift and a dynamic teaching gift, but is not automatically an elder unless they have the character to go along with it. In fact, I would say this in conclusion of these three sermons. The character of the elder is primary when talking about these three dimensions of an elder. Paul gives 10 or more character traits in Titus and 1 Timothy, and he gives one ability in each. The ability, the competency, it matters, but it's not as important as character. And further, I would say this, that these competencies, the ones that I unpacked today, leading and teaching, they're, they're only truly biblical if they're accompanied by and empowered by certain character qualities. So in other words, these competencies in themselves are not any good unless certain character goes along with them. Let me say it differently. What character traits are needed for oversight? What character traits are needed for oversight? A vibrant prayer life, patience, discipline, the ability to plan, the ability to work hard, etc. But the most important character trait demanded for oversight is this, humility. It is a lack of arrogance, a lack of pride, a lack of willfulness, a lack of independence. 
It's exactly what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 5. He says, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. Don't do it under compulsion. Do it willingly. Don't do it for for dishonest gain. Uh, Do it as to the Lord. Don't don't do it domineering over those in your charge. Do you hear that? Elders are in charge of people, but they're not domineering over those people. He says, set an example to the flock. Do not lead for selfish, ambitious, arrogant, self-centered, power-hungry reasons. Lead those in your charge by setting them an example. In other words, be willing to do everything you're asking them to do. Do everything you're asking them to do. For a biblical overseer uh, to lead like Jesus, they have to be intensely humble. Next, what character trait is needed to teach well. And I think there's a lot, vibrant prayer life, teachability, discipline, etc. But I have found in my short teaching ministry um, that I'm constantly praying that God would, um, what God would make effective and make me better at or more effective at, I guess I should say. But I, I have found that the most important character trait to be a strong teacher in the threefold ways described by Paul and Titus is this, confidence. A biblical teacher cannot find their identity in the approval and the acceptance of others. Uh, An elder who rebukes sharply has to have a lot of courage and a lot of confidence in who they are to publicly take to task someone who is teaching something besides Scripture. Now think about what we just said. An elder, to be competent, must have the character traits of humility and confidence, how often do you see those two together? Almost never. Two traits we almost never mention in the same sentence. And what I would say to you that there's only one place for these two traits to grow in the heart and the life of any believer, albeit an elder in this conversation. It is in the sunshine of the gospel. What is the only thing that can make a man both humble and confident? It is to know that you rebelled and soiled yourself and have hurt lots of people. That humbles you. But to know that God put on skin, suffered in his life and his death so that he could be with you forever. And he gives you the approval of the Father, the acceptance of the Father. That will give you confidence. Don't Nominate someone unless they've been thinking about stewing in, considering, believing, and receiving the gospel for a long time because it is only then that they will be humble in their oversight and confident in their teaching. And both of those are demanded for an elder. The gospel is the only thing that can bring about this kind of character in any of us that when I look at my life right now, I am disqualified and I do not deserve God's love, but that in Jesus, I have the Father's love and I can't possibly lose it or get more of it or pay him back. At the same time, I fall to my knees and lift up my head in humility and confidence. Let's sing to this one who has done this for us. We praise you, Lord Jesus, because it is in you that we have the gospel power to grow in humility and to grow in confidence. God, I again ask 
during this time of our worship service, as we turn towards the sacrament, that you would take anything that has been theoretical and you would wipe it away from us, that you would take anything that has been boring and you would cause us to forget it, that you would take anything that has confused us and let us chew on it later. But for right now, would you give us a heart to worship Jesus? Would you give us a heart to praise you for the gospel? Would you give us a heart to behold and to see this King of Kings who died uh, the beggar's death on the cross for us? As we turn to the table of communion, would you proclaim your gospel to us in new and fresh ways, we pray. Amen.